0: Good morning, church family. Pray that you are all well, as it is so good to see all of you here today on this beautiful Palm Sunday morning. And in light of it being Palm Sunday, I was asked a couple weeks ago if I'd be preaching today on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And although I did indeed consider it, church, being that I just preached on it back in Mark chapter 11... And furthermore, being that we have been in the midst of Holy Week, or Passion Week, really ever since that of December, I decided against it, and decided instead to just carry on this morning in the Gospel of Mark. As we will be starting Mark chapter 14 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 9. Or when the chief priest and the scribes plot to kill Jesus Christ, And when Jesus Christ is anointed at Bethany, which comes to us this morning in the Gospel of Mark, following, as we have seen over the past three weeks, Jesus' Olivet discourse, a discourse which all took place following Jesus Christ saying in Mark chapter 13, or Mark chapter 13, verse 2, after he, Jesus Christ, came out of the temple, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, referring to the destruction of the Jewish temple, which calls then four of Jesus' disciples, those four being Peter and Andrew and James and John, to say to Jesus Christ in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Or as the evangelist Matthew puts it in his account of the Olivet Discourse, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? To which Jesus Christ then opens his Olivet Discourse by initially warning his disciples, as we see in verses 5 through 13, about false messiahs and about false Christ and about wars and rumors of wars and about nation rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and about earthquakes and famines, and then about being delivered over to councils, being beaten in synagogues, standing before governors, about brother delivering brother over to death, and even about being hated by all, Jesus Christ says, for my name's sake. Only to then go on to say to his disciples in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And although the abomination of desolation, as previously mentioned, seemingly found its first or initial fulfillment in 167 BC, when the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes IV had some kind of altar built in the Jewish temple in honor of the pagan god Zeus and then sacrificed a pig on it, being that Jesus Christ here also uses the phrase, the abomination of desolation in verse 14, for that seems to indicate, church, that he, Jesus Christ then, did not believe that this prophecy would only find its fulfillment in 167 BC, but that it would also then find other fulfillments as well. Those fulfillments seemingly being to when the Roman general Titus, And his abominable Roman army came in and desecrated the temple and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And ultimately then, to when the Antichrist, or to when the man of lawlessness, as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 puts it, brings about a time of great tribulation against Christians at the end of the age as well. And yet after that ultimate and great tribulation at the end of the age... As we go on to see in verses 24 and 25, "...the sun then, church, for it will be darkened, and the moon then, church, for it will not give off its light." And the stars then, church, for they will be falling from heaven. Only then with this apparent setting of darkness, just kind of hovering over the earth at this time, will, verse 26, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, come again in the clouds with great power and great glory and will send out at that time, verse 27, the angels and gather his elect. From the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. In essence, that at the great and glorious return of Jesus Christ, the elect, the true children of God, for they are going to be gathered together at that time from everywhere, church, to the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. To which Jesus Christ then seemingly says to his disciples in verses 28 through 31, that this current generation of people will not pass away until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem takes place, only to then seemingly transition in verses 32 through 37 back to the great and final day, being the primary referent of the text, or to when he, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, will come again. However, being that Jesus' disciples do not know the day or the hour when he, Jesus Christ, will come again, Jesus Christ then admonishes his disciples, in essence, to stay awake, to be alert, to be watchful, and to be about their master's work until the day, whenever that may be, that he, their master, Jesus Christ, does indeed come again. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, church or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, do all that you can to faithfully love and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, since that type of faithful love and service is pleasing to God. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Christian, do all that you can to faithfully love and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, Since that type of faithful love and service is pleasing to God. And thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 14 and specifically to verses 1 through 9. And if you're joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you as our gift to you this morning. Because trust me, we want you to have and to be reading your very own copy of the Word of God, What you can start doing today by turning that brand new Bible of yours to page 850, and by joining us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we'll be in Mark chapter 14 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 9, Or John Mark the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray this morning that you give us all a heart that beats like Mary's in our text today. A woman who is willing to give up all that she could for the sake of Jesus Christ. Father, how often do we hold back the talents that we have, hold back the resources that we have, the giftings, the positions? the popularity that we might have. Also, that we are not mocked by the world, picked on by the world, ridiculed by the world. Father, give us the strength we need this morning. Let this text transform us this morning, that we no longer fear the world. But, Father, that we do all that we can to honor, to love, and to serve you. Father, I pray that you open the eyes and the ears of these dear ones here today, soften their hearts to receive your word, to be convicted by your word and transformed by your word this morning. And Father, I pray that you help my lisping and my stammering tongue to be able to communicate exactly what you want communicated this morning, as I was reminded, Father. Lord, humbly let me come with my two fish and my five loaves of bread, and I pray, Father, that you multiply them amongst your people this morning, and that you be glorified, Father, above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one. Christian, do not be surprised... When your steadfast love and devotion for Jesus Christ is vehemently berated and chastised by others. Christian, do not be surprised when your steadfast love and devotion for Jesus Christ is vehemently berated and chastised by others. Verses 1 through 5. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So following Jesus' Olivet Discourse, John Mark informs us, as we see in verse 1, that it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Likely indicating here, according to the inclusive Jewish reckoning of time, or calculation of time, that we are talking about the Wednesday of Holy Week, or the Wednesday of Passion Week. And thus, on the Wednesday of Passion Week, church, or as verse 1 puts it, two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The Passover here being the Jewish festival, which celebrated when the people of Israel's firstborn were spared, or passed over, if you will, due to the blood of the slaughtered Passover lamb, which was put on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of their houses, as opposed to the Egyptians who had their firstborn, Exodus chapter 12, all struck down, which then commenced or began the feast of unleavened bread which lasted seven days, and which commemorated Israel's exodus out of Egypt, or when the people of Israel came out of Egypt in haste, Deuteronomy chapter 16. And thus, verse 1, two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priest and the scribes, a.k.a. members of the Sanhedrin or members of the Jewish high court, For they, verse 1, were seeking at this time how to arrest Jesus Christ by stealth and to kill him, which really shouldn't come as a surprise to us, church, since as we have seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, religious leaders on various occasions have desired to arrest and to destroy Jesus Christ. And yet, as we go on to see in verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes, For they were seeking to arrest Jesus Christ in stealth at this time. For they said, verse 2, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And that being that some estimate that about 300,000 people would come to Jerusalem during the Passover feast. And that the city of Jerusalem and their population of about 60,000 people would just absolutely swell at this time. For the last thing, then, that these chief priests and scribes wanted was to cause any type of uproar or uprising or riot in Jerusalem when all these people were present. And thus, because of that, they seemingly then just wanted to wait until the Passover feast was over and until all the crowds and crowds and crowds of people just went home before they would finally then seek to arrest this ever-popular Jesus Christ, which as we all know, church, that plan did not end up coming to pass. Nevertheless, with that backdrop now in mind, or with that storyline now just kind of hovering over the text, John Mark then, the author of the Gospel of Mark, for he then just completely changes scenes here by saying, as we see in verse 3, that while he, Jesus Christ, was at Bethany, Bethany being about two miles away from Jerusalem, and also being the place, as we have seen previously in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus Christ has retired to in the evenings after leaving that of Jerusalem. And yet, while in Bethany at this time, Jesus Christ, verse 3, he was at the house of Simon the leper. And although we do not know much about this Simon the leper, As one commentator notes, for it does seem plausible here that this man named Simon, that he had actually been healed of his leprosy by Jesus Christ, and that this gathering then was in a sense an appreciation dinner for Jesus Christ for ultimately healing him of his leprosy. Nevertheless, as we read in verse 3, while Jesus Christ was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper and was reclining at table, A woman then, church, as we go on to see in verse 3, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. And what we seemingly have here, church, is a scene, as the apostle John notes in John chapter 12, that actually took place six days before the Passover feast. Meaning again, as numerous commentators point out here, this apparently then is a flashback scene of sorts, which is being sandwiched in between the narrative about the evil religious leaders who are seeking how to arrest and to kill Jesus Christ in verses 1 and 2, and as we will see in verses 10 and 11, their chance or their opening to be able to do so due to Judas's betrayal of Jesus Christ. And it's being sandwiched in between these verses, church, verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, in order for John Mark to showcase to his readers then the sacrificial love and devotion that this woman has for Jesus Christ compared to the absolute animosity and hatred that the religious leaders possess for Jesus Christ. And overall, it's a scene where a woman by the name of Mary, again as we see in John chapter 12, comes up to Jesus Christ with an alabaster flask, or as the NIV puts it, with an alabaster jar, which likely had a long neck on it. And she, Mary then, likely broke off the long neck of the alabaster jar and proceeded then to pour the ointment of pure nard, or again as the NIV puts it, the perfume made of pure nard, over Jesus' head. The nard here, church, likely coming from the root of a plant found in India, and which was, as we see in verse 3, very costly. To which in seeing this loving and caring and devoted act from Mary, where she poured this valuable and expensive and costly perfume over the head of Jesus Christ, there were some then, as we see in verses 4 and 5, who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Or as the Gospel of Matthew puts it, Jesus' disciples saw it and were indignant, saying, why this waste? Or as the Gospel of John puts it, that Judas Iscariot one of Jesus' disciples, in fact, the one who was about to betray him, for he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The 300 denarii here being over a year's worth of wages. And thus we have this beautiful, beautiful, Beautiful scene here, church, of this woman named Mary, who willingly and who freely and who sacrificially poured this valuable and expensive and costly perfume over the head of Jesus Christ, all as a way to honor and to love and to adore him, and yet... Judas, and seemingly some of Jesus' other disciples here, for they do not applaud her for doing this, or praise her for doing this, or compliment her, commend her, laud her, or support her for doing this, but instead they, they want to know why on earth she would waste this precious and expensive and valuable perfume on Jesus Christ, and they then, in anger, verse 5, scold her for doing this. And thus, applicably speaking, here. For do not be surprised, then, brother Christian, sister Christian, when your own steadfast love and devotion to Jesus Christ is vehemently berated and chastised by others. Particularly since, as James Edwards so astutely points out, for the world, it never has a problem with religion in moderation nor does the world have a problem with too much wealth or too much power or too much sex or too much influence. But, and make no mistake about it, for the world does indeed have a problem with too much religion. So yes, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. And yes, if you live a life that is steadfastly devoted and committed and faithful to Jesus Christ, it is very likely then that people will chastise you and berate you and ridicule you and mock you. And yet in light of all that, lovingly let me encourage you this morning to still not seek to just live out your Christian life only in moderation. Or only with half-hearted devotion. Or only with a sense of lukewarmness in order so that you can remain comfortable and prosperous and safe and secure. And so the things that you say, do, and believe do not come back and bring any kind of ridicule or mocking or chastisement against you. But instead, let me lovingly encourage you this morning to be brave Christian. To take heed Christian. To endure Christian and to be of good cheer, Christian, all while you deny yourself, take up your cross, and faithfully follow Jesus Christ, even if that means people will mock you, scold you, ridicule you, and insult you, all for your steadfast love and devotion to Jesus Christ. Because the fact of the matter is, although in this world you will have tribulation, for you can still have heart, Christian, because even in the midst of that tribulation, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he has conquered and he has overcome the world. Which brings us to point number two. Christian, it is a beautiful thing to do all that you can to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, it is a beautiful thing to do all that you can to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 6 through 9. But when Jesus said, Leave her alone, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And thus after hearing Mary being scolded in verse 5, Jesus Christ then as we see in verse 6 says, "Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Not a wasteful thing to me, not a senseless thing to me, not a careless thing to me, but instead, Jesus Christ, he affirms here that Mary, in pouring that expensive jar of perfume on his head, has done a beautiful thing to me. To which Jesus Christ then goes on to say in verse 7, that you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And please, please, please note here, church, That Jesus Christ is not being anti or hostile or against that of the poor. And that Jesus Christ is not saying here that we shouldn't be taking care of the poor or giving money to the poor or feeding the poor, giving shelter to the poor and ultimately trying to love and to serve the poor. And I say that because as we see throughout the scriptures... Particularly in places like Proverbs 14, 31, we as Christians are to care for and to be generous to that of the poor. A picture displayed by the late John Henry Byrne, who once wrote that when Lawrence, who was one of the deacons of the early church in Rome, was asked to share where the most precious treasures of the church were, Lawrence he pointed to the sick and to the lame and to the poor, and to the blind, since it was absolutely incredible, even as the pagans would note, to see the passion in which the early Christians helped each other with all their physical needs, for they spared absolutely nothing for one another. And not only that, but these Christians also took care of the poor amongst the pagans as well. For example, in the year 252 AD, a plague raged through Carthage, and the heathen just threw out their dead and their sick upon the streets and then just ran away from them all for fear of contagion, cursing all the Christians as they left. To which the Christians then decided to love those who cursed them. And that they're rich, well, they went to work with their money, and they're poor, well, they went to work with their hands. And all of them, Christian rich and Christian poor together, never rested until the dead were buried, the sick and the poor were cared for, and the city was saved from destruction. And thus, when Jesus Christ then says in verse 7, that you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. In short, what Jesus Christ was getting at here was that since opportunities to care for the poor, we're going to continue to be around and we're going to continue to be plentiful and we're not going to go away, whereas Jesus Christ was only going to be with them for just a little while longer since his death and crucifixion were going to take place very soon that now was the appropriate time then for them to be worshiping and to be displaying their personal love for Jesus Christ, just like Mary sacrificially did here. Who, as Jesus Christ then says in verse 8, has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And although there's a lot of debate as to whether Mary... Really did grasp and understand here what was about to happen to Jesus Christ, or if she really did purposefully here anoint Jesus' body in preparation for his upcoming death and burial. I just love what the 19th century Scottish Baptist pastor Alexander McLaren wrote concerning this text. For he said that love is wiser than it knows and the purpose for which Jesus Christ can make its offering serve, are higher and more sacred than even that of the offerer's intent. And thus, if we just take care of the motive, which is our end of the deed, he, Jesus Christ, then, will take care of the result, which is his end of the deed. To which Jesus Christ then says in verse 9, "'Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world,' that what she has done will be told in memory of her, which most certainly did end up taking place as evidenced by the fact that this beautiful story about Mary and her deep, deep love and devotion for Jesus Christ that it has been infallibly and inerrantly recorded right here in the Gospel of Mark, and we are still as the children of God telling this story and meditating upon this story and are still being encouraged and convicted and transformed by this very same story as well, and it's happening sure enough church, right where the gospel of Jesus Christ is faithfully being proclaimed. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who is here first, and to share with you at this time, non-Christian, not only this beautiful story about Mary and her love for Jesus Christ, but also proclaim to you at this time, non-Christian, the very gospel Of Jesus Christ as well, which is the good news that Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, came into this world as truly God and as truly man to live and to dwell amongst us and to save us from our sins by initially living for us non-Christian the life that we could never live. And that the life that Jesus Christ lived here on earth, non-Christian, was a life that was holy and righteous and just and good, free from any kind of wickedness or deceit, disobedience or sin. And thus because of that, he, Jesus Christ then, fulfilled the law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely, all for the very children of God. However, being that the wage of our sin non-Christian or the cost of our sin non-Christian is that of death, For that was not all, then, that Jesus Christ accomplished while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because he, Jesus Christ, also then took our very sins upon himself and willingly then gave up his own life as a sacrifice for the sins of many by being nailed to and crucified, killed and crushed on a cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned. And in doing so, satisfied the justice of our holy God, and appeased that non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God, all toward his sinful children as well. And thus, because of that, three days later, than this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, for he didn't remain dead or buried in some grave, but instead three days later, he, Jesus Christ, he gloriously rose from the grave and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin, and can clothe you then in his righteousness, in his perfect life, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who was here today, for as we closed point number one this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I lovingly warned you all that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12, and that if you live a life that is steadfastly devoted and committed and faithful to Jesus Christ, to not be surprised then when people chastise you and berate you and ridicule you and mock you. And then I lovingly encouraged you all to still pick up your cross and to follow Jesus Christ, no matter the cost, since our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has most certainly overcome the world. And yet so often we tend to think today that in order for us to live out our Christian faith in a way that is truly devoted and passionate and committed and ultimately pleasing to our God, that we then as Christians need to give, say, one billion dollars for the sake of the gospel, or to go into full-time ministry for the sake of the gospel, or to become a well-known evangelist, a popular Christian blogger, a renowned evangelical scholar, or an influential homeschooling mother, all for the sake of the gospel, in order for our faith and our love and our service and devotion to ultimately be pleasing to our God. And thus, because of that, I want to close this morning in light of verse 8, where Jesus Christ says that she, Mary, has done what she could that she, Mary, has done what she could, and that this woman named Mary, that she quite simply just took what she did have, that being an expensive jar of perfume, and that she freely and willingly and wholeheartedly and without any questions asked just gave it to the Lord. And oh, that we too, brother Christian, sister Christian, be willing to give all that we can to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as well. For as D.L. Moody once wrote, I imagine that when Mary of Bethany died, that if God had sent an angel to write her epitaph, he couldn't have done any better than to put over her grave what Jesus Christ had already said to her, that she had done what she could. For I would rather have that said over my grave if it could be honestly said than to have all the wealth of the Rothschilds. For Jesus Christ, he raised a monument to Mary that is more lasting than the monuments raised to the Tsar and Napoleon, and that as their monuments crumble away, hers endures. Since her name, even though it never appeared in print while she was on the earth, today it is famous in over 350 languages. And thus, although we might never be great, And although we might never be known outside of our circle of friends, may we, like Mary, do what we can, since life will soon be over, and it is short even at the longest. And thus because of that, for let us rise and follow in the footsteps of Mary of Bethany and do what we can. Do what we can, church, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Therefore, lovingly, let me encourage each and every one of you here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, that whether you have lots of talents or whether you have been given only one talent, give all that you can to the Lord. Or whether you have lots of money or that of very little money, give all that you can to the Lord or whether you have the gift of singing or just make a joyful noise the gift of knowledge or you struggle with understanding the gift of listening or you find that you talk too much the gift of teaching or you struggle to communicate with others the gift of fixing things or you don't even own a proper toolbox give all that you can brother christian sister christian to the lord and that it does not matter then how much money you make christian or how famous you are christian or how any talents or capabilities, areas of expectation or expertise or proficiencies that you possess, Christian. But instead, what does matter, Christian, is that you take whatever you do have and that you willingly and faithfully, joyfully and self-sacrificially give all that you can to the Lord because the fact of the matter is you are not your own Christian, but you were bought with a price by the precious and the redeeming blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thus because of that, whether you are rich or poor, famous or common, a somebody or a nobody, possess ten talents or only possess one talent, give all that you can, Christian, joyfully and freely, willingly and self-sacrificially to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, since he must most certainly is, worthy of our all. Thus it is my prayer that you give us this morning, Father, a heart that beats like Mary's in our text today and that we be willing to give up all that we can as we seek to honor and to serve you. For help us, Lord, to not be afraid of being mocked or picked on, ridiculed, or berated by those around us, but instead give us the grace we need, Father, to always be willing to pour out whatever talents and resources, gifts or proficiencies that we do have as an offering to you, since we as your children, Father, we are not your own, we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price by the precious and the redeeming blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and thus because of that, for let us do all that we can, Father, each and every day to honor and to love you as your redeemed children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have gifted us Gifted all of us uniquely. And that is a good thing. Because we do not want to be a body just made up of arms, just made up of eyes, just made up of ears or toes. We need all the body parts for this church body to function well. So, Father, whatever talents you have given this church, whatever proficiencies, whatever areas of expertise you have given us, let us be willing to give all that we can to you. Willingly, sacrificially, knowing that we are not our own, but that we can do it with much joy and with much gladness, knowing that we have been bought with a price. Our Redeemer, who had his blood poured out to cleanse us of our sins. And even if we face tribulation in the here and now, Father, we know that we can take heart because Jesus Christ, he has overcome the world. Thus, let us cling to that, I pray, Father, even in the midst of tribulations, to not be intimidated or scared to be mocked by the world for our faith and devotion to Jesus Christ but give us a heart that beats like Mary, Father, I pray, and that we be willing to give all that we can for the sake of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.